Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, be reading verses 12 through 25. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 12 through 25. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of Yahweh spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness, so that no one passes through? And Yahweh says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them, Therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them them until I have consumed them. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Consider and call for the morning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a welling over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of welling is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of Yahweh, and let your ear receive the word of His mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge, for death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares Yahweh, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, 
Father, have mercy on us. And how we have allowed our hearts to grow callous, our spiritual perception dim, our ears hard of hearing by sin against you. And so as your people freshly soften, illuminate, and speak, and for those here today that are utterly blind, they cannot comprehend the truths of God because they are spiritually discerned and they do not have the Spirit. Father, by Your grace, by Your Word, by Your Spirit, and by the preached Word of Christ, save them today so they don't share in the damnation that we see that comes upon Judah here. In the strong name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen. I'll remind you that we're now in the midst of a section that runs from chapter 8 and verse 4 into chapter 10 and verse 25 that's a collection of miscellaneous prophecies. These prophecies don't have a strong, a thematic glue holding them together as we've seen in previous sections. And that isn't to say there's not any genius of order, especially as the Spirit's involved in their assimilation, compilation into Jeremiah as we have it before us. It's just to say that the connection isn't as clear. Our, our understanding doesn't, we wouldn't pretend to know every reason why the Spirit put these particular prophecies in this particular order, only that the Spirit is perfectly wise in how He brought the Scriptures to us. There are various threads, though, that we can see hold our text together, especially whenever we're reading it in light of the fuller context, just, for example, what we've already studied so far in this current section. For instance, Jeremiah's lament in 8 and verse 18, and 8, well, in chapter 9 and verse 1, oh, that my head were waters, chapter 9 and verse 10, I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains. These laments of Jeremiah you now see give way to this call for the welling women of Jerusalem to teach others to lament. It's, it's being expanded. In chapter 8 and verse 19, you remember the people cried out, Is Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Basically in the face of suffering they're asking, How could this happen? Why is this happening? Which leads into the very question we have before us in 9 and verse 12. Why is the land ruined? And the answer that we receive here will echo that that God gave in chapter 8 and verse 19. They ask, where is Yahweh? And Yahweh replies to their question with a question. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? But whereas in that instance, God answers their question with a question, this time He answers this question with a litany of their sins. And finally, we saw last, just before coming to this passage, Jeremiah lamenting for the land because it's laid waste, verse 10. 
which leads directly into the question that they ask here. Our text opens with two questions as to who can answer a third question. Jeremiah first asks, who is so wise that he can understand this? And second, where is a true prophet to whom Yahweh gives understanding, gives His Word such that He could declare it? Pause a bit there. You remember following Jeremiah will soon encounter a prophet named Daniel. And Daniel had insight, wisdom, because of his Lord, beyond any of the wise men and counselors that served the Babylonian kings. He could explain mysteries, no one else could. And so, for instance, you remember whenever Belshazzar saw the writing on the wall, he was alarmed because none could explain it. But then the queen told him, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation, Daniel chapter 5. And so the way that this passage is set up, you're expecting a most perplexing of riddles to be set before us. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? Where is the prophet that he can declare it? Instead, we read, Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And if you've heard anything throughout the eight chapters leading up to chapter 9, this is not a difficult question to answer if you've heard anything Jeremiah has said. This is not a difficult question. It's an indictment of Judah. Their inability to answer this question doesn't indicate any deficiency in intelligence, but in humility. These questions are no insult to her intellect, but to her pride. Ephesians 4 tells us the source of such darkness of understanding. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Augustine wrote that the blindness of humanity is so great that people are actually proud of their blindness. Look around at humanity and you see that, don't you? You will see blindness touted as though it's sight. Darkness as though it's light. You will see ignorance boasted in as if it were wisdom. You will see folly 
paraded about as though it is great understanding. It's because Judah holds on to lies that she cannot grasp the truth. She holds on to these lies in pride. And for that reason, she can't grasp the truth because truth is grasped with the hands of humility. The false prophets have told them, chapter 5 and verse 12, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, chapter 6 and verse 14. And Judah doesn't want to let go of these lies because that would mean she would have to turn from her idols. The reason they cannot answer this question is because they love darkness. It's not simply that they are in darkness. It's that they love it. Jesus said, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You remember in chapter 5 of Jeremiah, we're told not only do the false prophets speak lies, but that the people love to have it so. They want the lies. They want to remain in ignorance. They want the darkness. Their pride then, because of this, is perplexed by God's humbling them. Their sin is shocked by God's righteous judgment. Their love of darkness is angry at God's light. This is why they cannot answer such simple questions. They do not want to answer them. It's why the world can't see the curse all around us. It's why in the face of suffering, they ask, why? It's because the apple is still in our hand. And we delude ourselves that if we just eat one more bite, then we will be like God. That we refuse to hear the truth, turn from our idols. God told Jeremiah the people would ask this question, chapter 5 and verse 19, when your people say, why has Yahweh our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. The punishment Rhymes with the sin. But their sin-muffled ears can't make out the poetry. It's not a harmed rhyme scheme. Whereas in chapter 5, God gave one answer there. Here we have this list of four reasons why the land is laid waste in verses 13 through 14. It's laid waste, verse 13, Yahweh says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them. Incidentally, before we get into this, you see how this validates Jeremiah as a true prophet to whom Yahweh has spoken? 
But Jeremiah just puts himself in the background. He's not saying, I'm the one so wise, I'm the prophet. It's simply the voice of Yahweh that's brought to the fore here and these four reasons given. First, because they've forsaken my law that I set before them. Now, all men, all men have violated the law of God. But not all men have done so as Judah did. He says, they've forsaken my law that I set before them. This recalls Sinai and the giving of the law. Moses addressed the people afterwards saying, What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as our as Yahweh our God is to us whenever we call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? To whom else has Yahweh so spoken from the fire, revealing His ways and His truth as He has to you? He sets His law before them. And you remember how He prefaced the law, Exodus chapter 20, before we get to any of the Ten Commandments, this is the preface. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the out of, uh, house of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Having redeemed His people to Himself, He sets before them His ways to guide them in righteousness and life. Remember, these are the terms of the covenant. And the land is part of this covenant. Why is the land forsaken? Because they've forsaken covenant. Second, Yahweh says it's laid waste because they have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it. Now, this is synonymous with the first reason, but it makes clear just how personal this is. When they violate covenant, they're not not ripping up some contract that was written by some third party with some standard legal language. It's the very voice of God that they're disregarding. Their covenant Lord and husband has given his bride her vows, and she turns away from them. He's speaking, walk this way. And she disregards his voice and walks the other. And third, Yahweh says this because they have stubbornly followed their own heart. So rather than walking in accord with God's voice, they walk according to the desire of their own hearts. The world tells us, follow your heart. The heart wants what the heart wants. As if that's some kind of justification. Or listen to your heart. I cannot imagine a more damning piece of advice than to follow your own heart. Shortly, Yahweh will make plain to them, chapter 17 and verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
if you can't understand your own heart, you certainly shouldn't try to understand by your heart. You are meant to be subject, all of you, heart, mind, will, to the Word of God. Not the other way around. Jesus tells us what comes out of the heart of sinful man, Matthew 15. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Fourth, the land is laid waste because they've gone after Baals as their fathers taught them. And here the irony of sin is seen. Because the worship of Baal, it was a fertility cult. You worshipped Baal and it was perverse immoral forms of worship that were involved. And it was thought because of those, that kind of worship that pleased Baal, who would then make the land fertile as well. But instead of the land being fertile, it is now laid waste. So now can you see the blindness of this idol worship being behind their question of asking, why? Why is this? Land laid waste. It's because of their false worship that they are so confused. And discipleship in this confusion began very early as their fathers taught them. You remember while Yahweh was speaking to Moses out of the fire and the cloud on top of the mountain that is trembling with the glory of God, as He's giving him the words of the covenant, the people at the foot of the mountain are worshiping a golden calf. It's not explicitly said that they're worshiping Baal. Indeed, they call the gods that delivered them from of Egypt, they, they ascribe Yahweh's name to that image. But it's, it's, it's idolatrous and it's certainly influenced by pagan worship, and most clearly involved in this would be Baal, who is often represented as a bull. But more certainly, whenever that second generation had grown and was ready to come into the promised land while they're encamped at Shittim, you remember the daughters of Moab lead Israel into perverse worship at Baal of Peor. Bell was often named after the location, Bell of Peor. And it's said that she yoked herself with Bell of Peor. She came into covenant, yoking herself with this pagan bull. It's for these things that the land is ruined and laid waste. It's for these things, just to reiterate it, verses 15 through 16, that these consequences follow. Three consequences. You, you, see, you see, because they have, they have, they have, they have, four times, verses 13 and 14, Yahweh will, Yahweh will, Yahweh will, verses 15 through 16. I will, I will, I will. First, He will feed them with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. In Deuteronomy, God had warned them, chapter 28, Beware 
lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from Yahweh our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. So there's this poisonous and bitter fruit of going after foreign gods that she is allowed to grow. And God is now saying, I'll let you eat of what you've grown. So that whenever they hear the words of the covenant, they reply, I'll be safe. Even though I walk according to my own heart. Second, verse 16, they'll be scattered among the nations that neither they nor their fathers have known. And again, this was plainly set forth before them as a consequence for covenant infidelity. Deuteronomy 28, 64 through 65, Yahweh will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. and There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But Yahweh will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Third, he will send the sword until he has consumed them. Again, the word of Yahweh plainly tells them this would happen. Leviticus 26 not only undergirds this particular curse, it just grabs at so much of what we see in this text, what we've seen in Jeremiah altogether. Leviticus 26, he tells her what will happen if she refuses to accept lesser discipline, saying, in spite of this, If in spite of this, you will not listen to me, in spite of these lesser judgments and punishments, if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places." And cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be 
a waste. So just as Adam told, just as God told Adam, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Nothing is happening here except what God clearly told them what would happen should they be unfaithful to covenant. This is not a difficult question to answer. But it's one that I fear many in the church will find themselves asking on the day of judgment. Remember, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Whenever you hear the words of Christ's covenant in his blood, do not presume to say to yourself, I shall be safe. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart, I'll be safe because there is a way of keeping the law that is lawlessness. There is a way of calling Jesus Lord that denies His Lordship. I'd say that the greatest danger, the greatest sign that you're in this kind of danger is that upon hearing it, you don't think you're in any danger at all. If you hear the warnings and exhortations of Scripture such as we see again and again in Jeremiah, and you think they could never have any application to you whatsoever, at all, ever. You are exactly the soul they stick to most. You're blind. You can't hear. You have no perception. Hear Paul's warning, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because one day, unless God has mercy upon your soul and graciously grants you insight, you will be in utter shock when you are condemned to an eternal hell. So more appropriate than confusion is the lamentation that God calls for. He commands them to consider and call for the mourning women. Now, whereas Jeremiah's lamentation was concerning the the land being laid waste, what we have immediately here is a call to call for the mourning women, verse 17. Again, Jeremiah seemed to be acting appropriately, and the daughter of his people is called to imitate him. These are women who are, you see, skillful in lamentation. They're professional mourners. Today at a funeral, we might call for professional musicians. 
they called for professional mourners. We think that practice odd, but perhaps it's because we're blind. We've gone from having funerals to memorial services to now celebrations. And at these celebrations, a show is put on and lies are spread such that not only the dead are preached into heaven, though they have no part in it, but the living are convinced that heaven is theirs when they have no part of it. The saints are not to grieve as those who have no hope. But those who have no hope should not be comforted as though they were saints. And the saints should have no part in comforting sinners as though they had hope. This was a time to weep. And Judah was laughing. This is a time to mourn. And Judah is dancing. And God says, desist with the wedding festivities. And seeing a funeral dirge. And now Jeremiah speaks prophetically as to what their response will be in verses 18 and 19. Let them make haste and raise a welling over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. You see, this was the purpose of these professional mourners. It was to help you mourn accordingly. It was to somehow match manifestly in a measured period of time the depths and woes of grief of those who are struck by the tragedy. They plead to be wailed over so that they might wail because of the wailing heard from Zion. So they're hearing this wailing because of what's happened in Zion. And at once they, they then should respond by calling for these wailing women so that they might well appropriately because of what has happened. This wailing in Zion is because they're ruined. They're shamed. They're shamed because they've left the land. They've left the land because their dwellings have been cast down. Reality is setting in. And the shame that they feel is beyond we were wrong. The shame is that in being cut off from the land, it's being manifest. They are cut off from Yahweh. They have no part in the covenant. And Jeremiah next addresses the wailing women, calling for them to teach their daughters to lament, teach their neighbors a dirge, verse 20. There are not enough professionals to match the wretched misery that Jerusalem now finds herself in. And so others must be taught because of the magnitude of what has happened. Death is all around. It creeps in like an assassin coming into their windows. It enters the palaces. The fortified places are no guard against it. And it cuts off Children in the streets and young men from the squares. This is not the expected natural death of the elderly. This is not whenever a siege happens and you expect we, we can make it through the siege. It means that those who are weak and vulnerable, the elderly, the children, they will die. But we're going to make it through this. No. This is the, the jolting death of the young 
the men are not making their ways through the squares on business anymore. The sound of children, as it were, playing in the playgrounds, on the streets, it's not to be heard. And the message then of either Jeremiah or of the welling women themselves, I think more likely, is thus declares Yahweh. This is their dirge, I think. The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung on the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. They're not to be buried, left exposed, an emblem of the curse that has come upon them. See, this is not, a, not lost by simple death. This represents eternal loss and cursedness. Saints, This world does not know how to mourn for itself. She's blind. She does not know how to appropriately mourn over her own soul. And so let us mourn for them as Jeremiah did for Jerusalem. If you long for others to know your joy then enter into something of the grief that is theirs eternally and mourn over their souls that they might know the Lord. You'll not find that this squelches your joy any more than the joy of Christ was squelched whenever He wept over Jerusalem. If we will not weep, then we too are blind by pride and sin. And callousness. Out of touch with reality. The concluding section begins by telling us three things that we're not to boast in before telling us the one thing we may in verses 23 through 24. Before we dig in, I think we need to ask ourselves, is this just an entirely independent section without any relationship to what's unfolded so far? I believe these are the very things that when boasted in will cause one to ask, why is the land ruined? These are the things that whenever boasted in blind you so that you can't answer a simple question as far as the judgment and righteousness of God. Those who boast in wisdom, those who boast in riches, those who boast in power think they are immune to suffering. They don't know how to lament. These three things are a summary then of all human boasting. And we're told they're nothing to be boasted in. What is man wisdom compared to God's? What is man's power compared to God's? What are man's riches Compared with God's, these are all gifts from His hands, and He's not the poorer for giving any of them. He gives liberally, benevolently, graciously, and He's not any poorer for it. He gives liberally, and yet the richest has only pennies out of His treasury. The strongest man lifts only pounds while he upholds the cosmos. The wisest man is a dunce in comparison to the God of all wisdom. We are all JV players 
comparing ourselves to the grade school team, forgetting whose court we play on. None of us measure up. We have nothing of our own. Wisdom, power, riches, if you have any of them, they're not your eternal attributes. They are gifts. There's no boasting on this playing field. No room for it. There's only room for humble gratitude and praise and thankfulness and humility. You see, our pride is not only astonished at judgment. It's astonished at judgment because we think we've achieved, we've merited, we've earned, we're, we're something, we've accomplished. We are all kids dressing up as superheroes thinking we can really fly. There's only one thing acceptable, commendable, deserving, worthy, in which man may boast. But him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That Judah knows God should be understood That she knows him at all is completely, entirely of grace. Has nothing to do with her. The knowledge of Yahweh is not to be boasted in as some kind of accomplishment, but as a gift. Such boasting is not in man's wisdom, but in God's wise plan of redemption. Such boasting is not in man's power but that our God is mighty to save sinners such as we. Such boasting is not in man's riches of merit, but in the riches of God's grace to us in Christ. The graciousness of this knowledge is highlighted by Paul, where in Corinthians he builds up to a quotation of this text, saying, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Do you hear the same kind of questioning happening there as happened in the beginning of our text? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, here riches. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, nothing of you, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, 
sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. All of our boasting is a glorying. That's a synonymous way of translating it or rejoicing. It is a glorying is my favorite way of translating it. It's a glorying, not in anything we've done, but what in God Almighty has done in His Son to bring us to Him. Such knowledge is eternal life. You remember Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know Yahweh means to know that He's Yahweh who practices steadfast love or unfailing covenant love, justice and righteousness in the earth. To know Yahweh, you see, is to know what He delights in because knows these, knows that He's Yahweh who practices these things because He delights in these things. In the 17th century, the Scotch minister Henry Scougal wrote a classic entitled The Life of God and the Soul of Man in which he The premise was basically this. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. A soul is lovely that loves lovely things. Man was built like a mirror. He was meant to reflect the glory of God. But as man turns in love and pride upon himself, there's only darkness. Well, John Piper picked up on this line from Schugel and contemplated in terms of God. His book, The Pleasures of God, he shows what it means that the worth and excellency of God is to be measured by the object of its love. And whenever we're told that God delights in steadfast love, justice, and righteousness... Do you not see that what we're told here is God delights in who He is? The worth and excellency of God is unsurpassed and infinite, immeasurable, all-glorious, beautiful, and perfect because He delights in what is infinite and, and above all precious and glorious and beautiful and true, Himself. And what He practices is who He is. Our God is in the heavens. He does as He pleases. He does these things. How beautiful, how glorious the God who delights in such things, who delights in Himself. And so then consider, what is the greatest act of God manifestly practicing steadfast love and justice and righteousness? is the cross of Christ whereby the righteous one suffered justice in place of sinners that they might know God's steadfast unfailing covenant love. Our God did not begrudgingly you see redeem man He delighted to do it. You you sense something of what the author of Hebrews told us here, do you not? That Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. 
And that joy involves being seated at the right hand of the Father. But as Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, He is seated as the God-man, the Christ, having redeemed His people. So do you not see that the presence of Christ at the right hand of the Father testifies the Father delights in steadfast love and justice and righteousness. He delights in Himself and magnifying His name in the redemption of sinners. What is such wisdom What is human wisdom, human power, human riches compared with the glory of knowing such a God? It's not without reason that the first question of the Westminster Catechism is so treasured. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the only thing worth boasting and glorying rejoicing in. Now the close of our text might seem loosely connected, but that the connection isn't loose between this this indictment of Jerusalem's circumcision, Judah's circumcision as being no circumcision, that it's not connected from what's unfolded, I think is just crystal clear from Galatians chapter 6, where Paul contrasts boasting in circumcision with boasting in the cross. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We've already seen that Judah has boasted that she'll be safe because the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, just the sheer physical presence of the temple meant God would not destroy them. Chapter 7 and verse 4. Likewise, she thought she was wise. Why? Because she had the law, chapter 9 and verse 8. And then we saw in chapter 7 that she thought because of all her sacrifices, all the sacrifices that she offers up, she's earned some kind of credit to where her sin is excusable, tolerable. He'll look over that. And now God is telling her, your circumcision, as it merely involves your flesh, is no circumcision at all. It's put alongside of, that, of the pagans, all these nations, Egypt, Edom, Ammon, Moab, those who dwell in the desert, cut the corners of the hair, referring to a pagan practice. All these nations, uh, all these nations are uncircumcised. He's, he's speaking of punishing those who are merely circumcised in the flesh. So Egypt, Edom, Ammon, Moab, they're all regarded by God as uncircumcised, even though they practice circumcision. It has no reference to God's covenant. He's telling them, your circumcision is regarded just like all of theirs. It goes no deeper than the skin. Remember in chapter 4, God warned them, circumcise yourselves to Yahweh Remove the foreskin of your hearts. This was what was always required for covenant fidelity. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. 
Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The only way they ever kept covenant was because of God's work of making the heart new, a new creation. And this is why Paul would say in Romans 2, no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Derek Kidner commenting said, Externalism, the great snare of the good churchman in every age, has seldom been more cuttingly attacked. And yet, it lives on. Likely, some of you have only been baptized with water. Which is to say, you've never been baptized at all. You know nothing of being in union with the Christ who died and rose. Some of you are nourished by the supper only by your stomachs. Because you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. What is your boast? Is it anything you've done? Walk an aisle, say a prayer, attend church, join the church. Is it anything you've done? Was your only boast this? That you know God because of what He's done. Can you sing with Augustus Top Lady? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Sinners, do not be astounded at the curse suffering that you see all around you. Do not be astounded at the Bible's repeated warnings of judgment and wrath. We have all sinned against an all-holy, all-wise, all-righteous, perfectly just God. Hell is not the perplexing thing. Hell is not the riddle. Sin is. Why would we sin against such a God? Let me, I can't answer that. But let me put forward another riddle. Why would such a God have mercy on such as us? Sinner, weep. Lament, cry out to God because of the doom that is certain to come upon your soul eternally. Repent of all your worthless idols, your vain sins. Repent of all your empty boasts. Turn your eyes to the crucified Christ, the righteous one who was crucified in place of sinners so that they might know God's covenant love. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will know God. You will have eternal life. 
And he will be your glory and your boast forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. By your spirit, may it pierce and save and sanctify. And may all glory go to you. Father, may we know you. Your steadfast love, your righteousness, your justice. And again, may we glory and boast and revel and proclaim and declare it. Hold it forth. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.